Are you stuck in the same old routine at work? Do you find yourself hitting a creative wall, unable to see beyond your current perspective? It's time to break free and unlock the power of fresh perspectives. So hi there for the next episode of Discovering Fresh Perspectives. I'm here with my friend Boyd Watkins, and we were just talking before I started recording that we've known each other for over 30 years, which is pretty incredible because sometimes I don't, uh, I can't even imagine that I'm 30 years old and maybe I don't behave that way either, <laughs> but that's a, a, a totally other story. So Boyd, I first met when he was the inventor of something called the electron, electric maze that we built into some programs we developed for IBM Canada and its leadership development. And we just became friends. I, I hope it wasn't just because he made a ton of money <laughs> selling mazes to IBM, but because we had maybe some other things in in common, but I thought we could start with a, a different perspective on on aging. So, although he doesn't look it, Boyd is actually uh, eighty six years old and is incredibly active. You know, as as much as possible. So, Boyd, maybe we just start talking about what some of your perspectives are on on age and and aging. And welcome. Okay, well, starting with uh, one of the things I try to uh, do to stay young is. Try to avoid old people. <laughs> so hang, hang with younger people if possible. Um, and when I think about people saying, am I, oh, what, where did you grow up, boy? And I go, well, I actually haven't grown up yet. Do you know what I mean? So, and I'm not all that interested in growing up as if it means getting old. Um, so, boy... But there's a lot of people that uh, that seem to appear old who are a lot younger than you are. So yeah. what is it that you do to keep kind of a, a you know, a, a fresh perspective and, and just keep, vi keep vital and alive? Like, I don't sense you slowing down at all. So how do you do that? Uh, helps to have some decent genes. That's one thing. <laughs> but um, I'm just interested in... I guess things that require mobility. Um, you know, I'm a gadget freak. I'm a repair person. I, I'm addicted to bicycling. And uh, I just seem to prefer activities that require some amount of youth, I suppose. But I don't actually think purposely about staying young. I just kind of am. Or my attitudes are maybe I, I don't feel like I think like old people think. So, so you mentioned cycling. So tell me a little bit more about um, your approach to cycling and, and what that means for you. Well, cycling was kind of a, uh, was not just an exercise, but it was a connection with uh, a group of people that shared cycling. And um, more, I guess for most of the time I've known you, David, we've had a group of guys that I call my dysfunctional men's group. I have two men's groups, by the way, I have what I call a functional mass group, which is a bunch of guys that have done a lot of personal development work, but they don't cycle. So they're not particularly my athletic men's group. But then my athletics men's group, um, I call them my dysfunctional group because we've done some traveling. Uh, one of the guys had access to various altered substances, you know, would say drugs, uh, mind expanding drugs, let's put it that way. And so we would have group uh, sessions with various, you know, not 
safe but mind-expanding drugs, typically outside in some bucolic area. Um, so the cycling was access to a lot of things, uh, including the, the dysfunctional group, uh, seeing part of America I wouldn't normally see. It just, it just was a, a very rewarding aspect, and it kept me healthy. Along with my genes, biking is a good health practice. And uh, recently, my knee kind of went out on me, and I had a half knee repair. But while my knee was out, I was kind of really uh, trouble. I mean, I, I was not able to stay fit like I normally do, and I was pretty much upset about it. I realized how dependent I am on biking to keep mm -hmm. uh, fit and keep my attitude, you know, in a good place. So I'm back on the bike and feeling human again. <laughs> I could imagine that um, you were actually, I mean, knowing you as, as I do, I suspect you're probably pretty miserable to be around if you weren't able to, to cycle. Uh, that's pretty accurate. I don't, I don't do, uh, I don't do sick very well. I, I tell people, uh, and I'm used to being very healthy. And if I would get a hangnail or something, I'd go, Oh, whoa, it's me. I got a hangnail. What are we going to do? Who's going to help me? You know, like that. So I'm kind of spoiled about being healthy. And uh, I just thought I don't do, I don't do sick very well. Although, you know, I did have a heart valve replacement uh, some years ago that altered some of my biking practices. And it was because I have a, a valve that was getting corroded. My heart was healthy, but the valve was, uh, was you know, aortic sclerosis, I guess they called it. So I got a new valve, a nice new valve that was big enough to keep my aerobic activity uh, available. And uh, I'm back and, you know, it was no big deal. And did you celebrate with a new bike? Uh, <laughs> yes, I did. Well, uh, during my recovery, I decided I needed an e-bike to keep my, uh, my performance level up. So I bought my first e-bike as a result of getting that uh, operation. And I can remember you uh, talking a number of years ago about um, how some of the younger guys could take you on the flat, but no one could take you in the mountains or something like that. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, well, my group uh, has um, some resentment of me because I used to drop them on a lot of the hills. And so <laughs> later, later when I would, you know, complain about having, you know, being tired or having some problems, say, we don't care about you. You've been beating us off, you know, beating us up on bike rides for so long. We hope you, you know, we hope you fail. We're going to get back at you someday, which they now do. Some of them do. So, so um, let's, let's step away from biking for a sec and just your background, Boyd, like my understanding is that you were an engineer. Is that correct? And sort of the heydays of Silicon Valley, you just go back. Uh, a bit. Yes. Um, but, you know, and pardon me, uh, I was thinking this morning, we were going to talk, and I was thinking, well, how did I get here and what's responsible for, you know, how I am now? And then I realized, well, some, just a bunch of major factors. One thing being black in a white, in a white world. Okay. I'm, I'm a light skinned black person, and I was raised very, I had much, a lot of advantage, but being black is, in America is a big deal. Um, so that's a, that was one factor. Then I was lucky enough to have parents that had white friends so we could buy a place in Walnut Creek, a, a, a white community with a very great high school. 
in grammar school. So I was raised as a kind of, a, I would say, semi-advantaged middle-class kid, you know, with my twin brother. I have a twin brother. And two of us were the only two Blacks in the community and in the high school. So that was a kind of a different upbringing for a person to be but both black, which is a you know can be quite a challenge in America, but also to have the advantage of living where I did and going to living in this wonderful community. So that so, was part of my background. So before we go on from that, so what so what was the impact of being black? And and I remember having a conversation with you a number of years ago that I didn't realize that there's kind of a you know a status difference depending upon how dark your skin was. But oh, absolutely. So there's that within the black community, but there's also black within the white community. So how did how did that shape you, Boyd? Well, it, it, it say in high school, I we were very accepted. We were assimilated by white kids because we were kind of light skinned, right? And they used to say, "You're not like those other ones," you know. But so we were accepted, and I was actually ended up being senior class vice president in this high school. In other words, you know, you run for these offices and so on. So we were very accepted. We did well. We were good, good students. Uh, but the other thing I was thinking about that and being black in a white community, you walk into a setting where you don't know anybody in this setting. And you know automatically that someone, some people in that setting are going to find, are going to have bad feelings about you just because you're black. And you're likely to have someone kind of come up and, you know, kind of either challenge you or sort of in some way, you know, indicate they're not comfortable with you. So you always had that knowledge that wherever you were, wherever you're around white folks, boy, they accepted you, but then some would always not. Um, it went on. Um, I don't want to go on, that, but, but it, it, say in the Navy, we were in the Navy, and we had already been to junior college two years. We got kind of drafted by the Navy, if you will. So we were in a, had real high scores in our tests, and we got assigned to a quartermaster division, which was the elite division on the aircraft carrier. Um, but two things happened there. One, um, when you, you just knew, and we were only two black kids in that division, right? So you just kind of knew that you weren't quite, they were surprised you were there. Jim Crow was still alive and well at that time. And time came up for our advancement, and somehow our, our test didn't show up. He didn't want us to quickly, you know, get ahead of other kids and or people in that division. So the first thing we experienced in the Navy uh, is our advancement tests are somehow lost, and we aren't able to take, you know, so that kind of stuff just went on. Um, on the other hand, we were, if someone said, well, what was your background? So, well, I had an advantaged middle-class upbringing, you know, it was, it's just that, you know, there were these other factors. So it just, you know, it didn't, it, I, I think the one thing that came out of it was that I ended up, if someone said, how do you identify? Are you, you know, people would ask you, what's your nationality? And it's like, they didn't even know how to say, what's your race? They would ask you, what's your nationality? And, and, and so anyway, the point was, I thought of myself not so much as black as as unique. I was an individual. I I wasn't white, but I didn't have a black community that I was living in actively. Although we had family and black, I had some time in a black community. But it was like I knew I was 
I guess from a protective point of view, I was an individual. And so that said, I don't have to do a lot of things that other people do because I can sort of pick my path. I, I kind of had that sense. And I guess that's, you know, not to go on with that, but, and it wasn't all about, well, that's all I want to say on that. Um, okay. And then, and then thank you for that. I mean, there's certainly some things I didn't know about Joe. It's always nice in these interviews to find out something that's new. Then you ended up somehow as an engineer. How did that happen? Oh, that was pretty interesting. Well, first of all, back in Walnut Creek, uh, I'm in high school, and I know that it's smart to ask people. I, I would do drafting and so on, so I figured I wanted to be an architect. And so I found an architect in this small town of Walnut Creek. Yeah, I think he's the only architect in the town. And he was an old guy in this kind of dark office. And I walk in there and I go, Oh, hi, I think I want to be an architect. What do I have to do to be an architect? And, you know, what's that like? <clears throat> Which is a very smart thing to do. You want to be, you talk to someone who's got that, you know, job. He looks at me and says, well, I don't know. Uh, you may not want to do that because I don't think you'd ever get a job as an architect. Hmm. So his perception was seeing that I was a black person, he didn't think that I would be able to, you know, succeed as an architect because I'd be discriminated. He knew that. Um, and I went, oh, okay, check that one out. You know. And then what was going on is there was some, I forget where, but it was kind of obvious that technology and engineering was a field that was expanding. And uh, so we said, oh, let's try engineering. And we sort of, from that point of view, we both did, my brother and I. Mm -hmm. Since I can't be an architect, I got to do, I got to have some kind of career Engineering sounds good, so we picked that and we went. That you know, we did that, and that worked out really well. So, but it was based on <laughs> the fact that I couldn't be an architect. So, what else would you do to make sure you didn't have a lousy job? You know, and that turned out to be really great. I mean, I talk about so anyway. I guess to, my choice of engineering as a career allowed me to experience the American dream which was go to school, get well-educated in a field of choice, go out and get hired in that field and excel and just get all the returns of a fast-moving career. So my engineering career in Silicon Valley at the time, Silicon Valley was just expanding. I tell people I could have been blue with, you know, purple polka dots. <laughs> And they would have still hired me, and I would have expect you know experienced no limitation on my my career. I mean, it was just a wide open field, and I I excelled and I loved it, and it was fun, and it was like the American dream. So, but now what kind of engineering? There's different flavors. Uh, so Were you uh, building roads? Were you <laughs> no micro? Well, no, no, hot, that's the highest level engineering, microcircuit development. So the fact that all, all these, I kind of blame the, the pencil net nerds that are doing all the software and making the millions. We engineers at the time were developing the microcircuits that allowed for these memories and all this computer technology. So we were building the, the building blocks of what is this amazing computer technology that we have. And they probably haven't even thanked you sufficiently. For that. Not that I, well, <laughs> I was well uh, compensated, but 
I didn't make millions, and uh, no, I didn't get a lot of gratitude from the, you know the, all those other people with the software engineers that I kind of resent. And and so, how have you have you used that? You, you described earlier that you're a bit of a, a tinkerer. Yeah. So, how does you know your experience in in engineering and microcircuits and things like that? Well, I have a, I guess I have a couple of questions that are all combined. And one is, so when did you retire, and how did you use that that expertise beyond the job? Because I know you've tried you've tried to contribute to make you know people in the world a better place. Yeah. Well, the the my dad was a master uh, craftsman. And my dad could do anything from, you know, repair a car, refelt a pool table, build his own house. You know what I mean? He, he worked in the uh, Bay Area uh, Alameda Air Station as a mechanic. Um, and he was just very skilled at that. And then he, when he, we moved to the Lily White Walnut Creek, he had to do more. Oh, he opened the business, the rental business, a rental equipment business. But he's a very enterprising uh, able person. And so my brother and I had this master craftsman to kind of oversee us and train us. And uh, one of the things when we were doing something, say working on a car and we do something stupid or drop the wrench or maybe do something, you know, my dad wouldn't say anything, but he'd just shake his head quietly. It's like, <laughs> oh no, 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 he's going to shake it. Oh God, he shook his head. We screwed up, you know. So we still kid each other, my brother and I, my twin when we want to kind of put each other down and say something, I'll, I'll go, oh, man, and I just shake my head to him, you know, like this. <laughs> <laughs> so, but with that kind of, you know, coaching, if you will, uh, we became very skilled in, you know, crafts and woodworking and mechanics and all that. So that was the basis of our being able to do things, say, mechanically. So, so what are the, some of the things you've done mechanically? I want to go back. So did you keep kind of experimenting and tinkering while you were working full-time as an engineer, or did that accelerate after you stopped being an engineer? Because I think, as you said, you're pretty successful in Silicon Valley at that time. Well, I had a successful career. Uh, but once you're mechanical, I mean, I also repair, I'm handy, you know what I mean? But when we were in the Navy... Uh, because of uh, that circumstance where the tests were hidden, we, we ended up getting transferred. We, we went in for a transfer to an ET, electronics division, that made more sense for us. And the off petty officers, the officers derailed our transfer and got us sent down to the lowest division on the ship. So we were down there with, you know, the swabbies and the decades. So decades was the term. And I tell people, there were down there, the people down there that could have, you know, been in the movie Deliverance. You know, the movie Deliverance. <laughs> we there were some people there that could have been in that movie. It was quite of a different environment than from when when we first got in the Navy. And why did they go? Oh, sorry. So we firstly got out of the Navy in the off, off the aircraft carrier where all this was taking place, and we were transferred to the desert, not Mojave Desert where we did data reduction thing uh, for the Naval Air Force. And so we were almost like we were, you know, um, technical workers doing data reduction for air lofting, you know, bomb lofts and all that sort of stuff. But so wait uh, just a sec, I have no idea what data reduction is. 
Well, just data analysis and, and, okay. and you know, but they also had a machine shop and a carpentry shop, and we ended up making all the pieces of a uh, um, a motorboat, which we were able to take back home, and we ended up making assembling it all back home. When we got out of the navy. <laughs> we had this uh, ski boat that we made that we ended up making the parts while we we're in the Navy. So we had that kind of, you know, ability, if you will. You know, but so I, I still want to know when you retired. Uh, a few years ago. Oh. <laughs> when you say a few, like if you're 20 years oh. old and you say a few, a few could be two years. At, at your um, advanced and still advancing age, a few years ago could be like 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. 30 years right. ago. Yeah. <laughs> glacial, my glacial age. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I didn't, I never thought about retiring. I didn't try to retire. Uh-huh. Uh, I, didn't, I just didn't seem like something you do. So, but you know, recently I turned my company over to my, a partner company, RSVP. And these are good people we're working with. And so that was the most, the closest thing to retirement I did. I don't have to run interrail anymore. So I'm kind of officially retired in that I don't run interrail. But it, so I guess I'm retired, but that's only been a year or two or three. I can't even remember exactly. That's not very long ago. So I'm guessing that most people listening to this have no idea what interrail did. So maybe you could just do a brief overview of, of what it did and why it did that. Uh, the uh, the why is more important. Well, the why is back when I was an engineer, I observed how dysfunctional people were in organizations. Now, there was everywhere in this uh, advanced um, industry, but I, I observed things like you know, a woman engineer or something couldn't get a decent assignment in the company I was in. And there was, you know, the kind of... Uh, uh, I just saw a lot of organizational dysfunction. And having had some experience uh, living in San Francisco, by the way, through most of my engineering career, I was in San Francisco commuting to Silicon Valley. Well, San Francisco was the heart of the new agey stuff, the, the hippie stuff, the uh, kind of free university stuff where we learn different things. Like tea groups, experiential groups, and so on. And so with that kind of background, let's see where I'm going here. Oh, with, with that kind of environment, I was becoming what I thought was aware of how dysfunctional organizations were and how dysfunctional people were. But I had experienced groups that were having individuals be much more functional. In fact, uh, and kind of wake up to the brainwashing they had, you know, from being born and living in a limited society and breaking out of those bonds and, and, and experiencing possibilities that they would normally, not normally experience. With that kind of background, I decided that I knew what was required to fix organizations. And so... And 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 look and 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 I also came to the conclusion that people had, particularly if you talk about social skills, social intelligence, uh, there were barriers to people learning uh, those kinds of skills. Technical math, you know, history, 
people would learn that without if they you know might have been slow learners but they didn't have fearful barriers to learning those kinds of topics but learning about social skills uh was much more difficult for people to do and they, in fact they had barriers to learning you know accepting anything different than the kind of attitudes or opinions they had you know going into it we'll say so I concluded that you almost had to trick them into learning new things, right? And so somewhere about this idea of experiential learning, and I guess I got it out of some of the personal development work I'm doing, but what occurred to me was if you could design environments, learning environments that were experiential based, if you will, you could trick people into experiencing something that was different than what they believed. Hmm. And therefore they could get new insight or new beliefs. So you could work through the barrier that people would have to that kind of learning. If you could use experiential processes that would, uh, would do that. And that kind of got me interested in, you know, using quote tools, to, to, con to conduct experiential uh, activities for learning. So that's, that's what Interroll was about. Interroll was then a place I could try to do that, experience with that, experiment with that. <clears throat> but by then I had been an engineer, had gotten out, had made some money because I was with startup companies. Uh, one example was with a company for a couple of years and they came by and gave me they said, Here, give us a dollar, we're going to give you 10 shares of the company. And a year later, they, I was, I, they gave me $5,000, which I put on, down on a house <laughs> because of those kind of quick schemes that you did in Silicon Valley, right? So with that kind of process, I ended up making, you know, enough money to leave the industry and do what I wanted and still eat. So I, my, my statement was I could tell anyone to go screw themselves and I still eat. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I know when, when you're doing that, some of the devices that you developed and, and I don't know when you developed one called the electric maze, but yeah. I still use that. That's one of my favorite activities. So, yeah. you know, obviously very successful at that. And, and Boyd, what I'm going to do is just close this conversation off. Cause I'd like to have another one with you. So Boyd Watkins part two, subscribe now because on fresh perspectives, Every episode is an opportunity to explore new horizons and redefine what's achievable.